0: Hi, this is Bill Kristol. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. I wanted to tell you about a new program I've begun with the Foundation for Constitutional Government. It's called Conversations, and I invite leading figures in American political and intellectual life for in-depth discussions. Recent ones we've had include Vice President Dick Cheney, General Jack Keane, and Peter Thiel. You can find these and all the conversations online at our website, which is conversationswithbillkristol.org. They're also available on YouTube and on iTunes. So if you register at the website, conversationswithbillcrystal.org, we'll send you emails to alert you to the new ones we add every two weeks. I think you'll enjoy them.
1: Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. With us is Weekly Standard contributor Adam White, who is fresh from the courthouse where he's been fighting for justice yet again, no doubt, Adam. And a lot of people who are smarter than I, who talk about the law, are really focused on this sudden shift in fortunes when it comes to the Supreme Court and Obamacare.
0: Well, thanks, Michael, for having me. You're right. It's been an interesting uh, couple of weeks in terms of Supreme Court constitutional litigation, and this case is a big one.
1: Well, uh, we weren't sure if there was going to be if they were going to take it, and now it seems like the Supreme Court appears at least four members of it <laughs> anxious to take it. Uh, what are the prospects for this debate over whether or not the federal government can subsidize uh, insurance that they hand out as opposed to insurance that comes through the state exchanges?
0: Well, like I said in the article that runs this week, uh, people keeping an eye on this new Obamacare case need to know, first and foremost, this isn't going to be the same kind of case as the last one to reach the court. The, the famous NFIB versus Sibelius case about the individual mandate, that was a constitutional challenge to the individual mandate. Uh, this case is a statutory challenge. It's not about what the Constitution does or does not authorize. It's what Congress did or did not authorize when it passed the law. And so it's a very technical dispute. Um, obviously there are some constitutional undertones, uh, but it's, it's very much, um, it's, it's lawyer's work, as Scalia likes to say. It's a, it's a technical legal dispute. And so as I said in my article, as you're thinking about this case, you know, sure, think about the NFIB case, but also think about other cases where the court has considered broad uh, claims of discretion and, and, and broad and distortionary statutory interpretations as the administration tries to administer other federal programs. For example? Well, the example that I cite was a case that came out last year uh, called Utility Air Regulatory Group. It was an EPA case, a challenge to the EPA's greenhouse gas regulations. That was the case where the EPA said, well, we want to impose all these new restrictions on greenhouse gas emissions, but the Clean Air Act uh, sets these, these thresholds, these, these, these numerical thresholds for how we're supposed to enforce the statute, and those numerical targets don't really make sense in the context of greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, we're gonna, they, and the government continued. They said, we're not gonna take that as an, an implication we shouldn't be regulating greenhouse gas emissions at all, but rather we're gonna tailor the statute. We're gonna just change the numbers, uh, ignore the numbers, apply our own sort of calculations on how to enforce the statute, and we'll just do it the way we want to do it, how we see, how we see, uh, best. And the Supreme Court pushed back against that very strongly. A five justice majority, including, uh, the Chief Justice, John Roberts. Said that Congress set these numbers, they're clear, and the agency can't just simply uh, swipe them aside. And uh, as Justice Scalia said in a memorable opinion, you know, he said, we're not going to, we the court aren't going to stand on the dock and bid uh, the EPA bon voyage as they go on a, 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 a voyage of self discovery. The statute means something and it needs to be applied as such. Uh, obviously, no two cases are completely alike, but I do think that there are echoes of that case. In the dispute now at hand.
1: Now, uh, there's been a lot of talk about what the Grubergate situation means uh, for Obamacare, and in particular for the court, because uh, uh, Jonathan Gruber, one of the architects—well, uh, excuse me—he was one of the architects of Obamacare, and still he started saying dumb things. Now, apparently, no one's heard of him; they can't find him. He's never been to Washington, but. Um, There's been a lot of talk about what Grubergate means to the future of Obamacare and not just the political part of it because, after all, uh, the architect or formerly the architect, now that he said the American people are stupid, no one's ever heard of him, they can't find him, no one's got his cell phone number. But um, he did say explicitly in some of the, the comments that have been focused upon that the way the system was set up was only state exchanges would get federal money. And therefore, if you didn't do a state exchange, you'd be paying into the system, but not getting the federal money. Do, would someone like that have an impact on what the Supreme Court decided? Would statements like that have an impact on what the Supreme Court decided as far as the plain language of the statute, as you're just talking about, that the statute has meaning? Or is that just a political bubble that keeps people like me and MSNBC talking, but has nothing to do with what Scalia and Roberts are going to do?
0: Well, no, I think the statements are important. I don't want to overemphasize them because at the end of the day, Congress is going to look first and foremost at the statute and then second at the legislative history, the official legislative history surrounding the statute. But here's why Gruber is important. All along throughout this dispute, the government has suggested that the, the folks challenging the statute are, are really ridiculous in suggesting that Congress would have intentionally created this bifurcated system subsidizing state exchanges but not federal exchanges. The government suggests that there's no real reason why Congress would have ever done that. And now you have Gruber come along who, like you said, was a so-called architect of the, of the Affordable Care Act. He comes along with these released, these newly released videos from a couple of years ago, where he is saying very directly that one of the great benefits of the way that Congress structured this statute is that the states have to opt in in order to get the subsidies. So the Gruber statements don't—I wouldn't say they prove. Legislative intent on the part of Congress. What they do do is they disprove the government's suggestion that uh, it's ridiculous to suggest that Congress would have wanted to do it that way. Not only that, but the
1: you can see the plain motive of this: the forced buy-in of the states. Make these states buy in, and then they won't be as critical about the policy. They'll be more cooperative to making it work. You, in essence, will kind of co-op your political enemies because they don't want to leave the federal money on the on the table. And it is annoying to have people talking about throwing around the word. Uh and my understanding is, by the way, that there is already some like legal or legislative remedy for a lift. Ty- in fact, you know, whatever the word shall somehow became shant or something. That you can fix that anyway, and so that also undermines the argument that the uh, Obama administration is making.
0: Well, that's right. There's a lot of where you really do have literally an obvious typo. There are ways to fix that, and in, in court cases, they have the doctrine of what's called a scrivener's error. Um, I, I think it really does strain credulity to suggest that this was just a, uh, a typo. What you said before about federalism is important, by the way. Um, there are a lot of federal programs that are structured to be uh, a, basically a joint effort by the federal and state governments. You see that in Medicare Medicaid. You see that in a lot of the environmental statutes like the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act, and those programs are casually referred to as cooperative federalism. But like you said, this goes sort of beyond that. This becomes co optive federalism, where the federal government is effectively trying to co opt states into buying into the system, uh even if they don't really want to. There was a touch of that in uh the last Obamacare case, the Medicaid expansion where the Supreme Court struck it down. Uh and there is a there's a little bit of a, of a of a uh, an echo of that in this case.
1: You know George will, who's a pretty smart fellow, he thinks that this court case is going to let uh, Republicans off the hook to do anything about obamacare they're going to wait, let the Supreme Court rule that in fact the plain meaning the plain words in the statute. Uh, equal the plain meaning of the statute, which is that you have to do this through the state so you don't get the money, and therefore Obamacare is going to collapse. Are you as confident about how the court is likely to rule as George will, uh, Adam, and does it mean if, in fact, the ruling does go against the White House and, in fact, you can't subsidize the federal exchange customers, is that the end of Obamacare?
0: Well, the policy outcomes that result from a, a decision in favor of the challenger um, are tough for me to predict. I don't know if you're a Simpsons fan. I remember an old episode where the, the famous lawyer Lionel Hutz said to the judge, that's why you're the judge and I'm just the law-talking guy. Uh, so it's easy for me to sit here and analyze the legal argument. It's a little less easy for me to guess on what comes next. Now, the, the proponents of this case, the challengers, you know, they they've set forth a very strong explanation for why Obamacare would collapse under its own weight uh, if, if if these exchanges are not uh, allowed to go into effect the way the federal government wants to. and That's quite possible. Um, the architects of this case, the challengers, they've set forth a pretty good explanation of how Obamacare would collapse under its own weight uh, if this challenge succeeds. Uh, those arguments make a lot of sense to me. I do see that uh, if the challengers win this case, the left uh, and the media will immediately put immense pressure on Republicans in Congress to change the system. They'll probably put immense pressure on governors to try to belatedly opt into the system. And I could see pressure, uh, even during this court case, I could see perhaps uh, groups, if they start to get worried about how the case might turn out, start to put pressure on the justices to try to leave room open for states to belatedly opt in. Uh, What I think is clear, though, from what I just said is that if the system isn't, isn't changed, if it goes into effect the way that Congress set it up, it's going to cause major, major headaches for those who created the system and who those are trying to administer the system. And I think it just reflects all the more how this was a mistake to begin with, this this uh, statute was a mistake to begin with, uh, and it requires serious, comprehensive reform to create something sustainable that actually fixes health care our health care and health insurance problems without just turning everything over to a, a bunch of... Uh, unaccountable and unrealistic bureaucrats.
1: Uh, One more thing I want to ask you about this, not related to this, but since you are the great legal mind of the Weekly Standard, the President's about to announce uh, his uh, executive order on immigration. Some people shorthand it, executive amnesty, etc. There's been a lot of talk about what limits the executive has under our constitutional system. I don't know if you saw the exchange over the weekend where he was asked, did you go to the DOJ and did they give you limits on what you can do? And he said yes. And then the reporter stood there for a second and why are you going to tell us <laughs> what, what limits the executive has put on itself? And he says no. So, are there any limits? in if you know, if if, I, if you were teaching, teaching a course uh, on constitutional law and the and the executive, what where would you start saying this is where the limits start kicking in on the president's distress, discretion to ignore and then wholesale rewrite the law?
0: Well, the first limits that everybody will have to look at are the limits set forth in the statute. Now, when Obama uh, announces his decision, if he does announce it this week, all eyes will be on the administration and the Justice Department uh, and the Department of Homeland Security to outline its legal basis. At some point, it will have to. Uh, and then we can look at the specific statutes they're citing. We'll see how much discretion those statutes leave the administration, and we'll judge from there. But stepping back from that sort of technical argument, there is the broader constitutional argument of what's called the Take Care Clause, the provision in Article II of the Constitution that requires the president to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. Uh, One of the challenges in this is that Obama will probably claim, he'll probably rely on sort of nebulous legal concepts of prosecutorial discretion or similar uh, sort of exceptional doctrines, you know, little exceptions to the usual rules and basically try to turn those exceptions into the new rules of the road. Um, You know, it's the difference between a sheriff saying, I'm going to let this, uh, I caught this guy for speeding, but I'm going to let him go with a warning, and the same sheriff just announcing that there are no longer any speed limits at all in his county. There's a big difference. Everybody can tell, you know, anybody looking at that situation knows that there's a big difference, but it becomes difficult to draw lines. So I would would urge that we ought to wait until the administration issues its decision and then look at specifically what they're claiming to do. And then we can start – I mean, it's hard for me to believe that there's any plausible legal basis for what they're about to do. But in terms of the legal arguments, it's all going to begin with the administration's case. Now, what you said about the Justice Department is very important. This administration from the very beginning in 2009 has evidenced a very aggressive approach to legal interpretation. Uh, we've seen this, uh, well, and furthermore, this administration is not afraid to sort of sidestep the ordinary procedures, the Justice Department's review of constitutional questions. Uh, they're not afraid, the administration's not afraid to sidestep that when it doesn't like the answers it's getting. For example, some of its operations, its military operations overseas, uh, reportedly Got very uh, very negative opinions from the Justice Department's legal analysts, and so instead, the administration relied on the advice of the State Department's legal advisor rather than the Justice Department. One example I like to use that's sort of long forgotten after the last six years is uh, from the opening days of this administration, in the very early days, in February and March of '09, there was talk of maybe giving Congress, or sorry, giving Washington D.C. a vote in Congress, and uh, folks in the administration went to the Justice Department asking for advice the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel issued sort of preliminary word that what the administration was trying to do was just flat unconstitutional. Rather than go with that official opinion from the, from the Office of Legal Counsel, instead, uh, Attorney General Holder went down the hall to the Solicitor General's office and asked the Solicitor General, then Elena Kagan, uh, do you think that our argument is so preposterous to not even pass the laugh test? Um, it showed it showed sort of their mindset and not just going along with the usual procedures, which is particularly ironic because, as you and your listeners will recall, the last three or four years of the Bush administration was just a constant stream of invective directed by the left and legal scholars towards the Justice Department for uh, taking aggressive legal positions in the global war on terrorism, for using signing statements to push back against Congress's encroachments upon presidential power, one of the interesting stories of this, uh, of the last six years and the next two, is this administration going well beyond even the worst caricature of what they ever ascribed to the Bush administration in terms of their approach to the rule of law.
1: And we appreciate your analysis of where the law is. Thanks so much, Adams, The Weekly Standard, for joining us for this podcast.
0: Thank you. You've
1: been listening to The Weekly Standard podcast. Please be sure to check weeklystandard.com regularly for podcast updates. I'm your host, Michael Graham.